with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. And we are continuing with this series on the book that was edited by Jonathan Reams, and it's called Maturing Leadership. We are embedded in this conversation about a number of chapters from that edited volume, really exploring the intersection between adult development and leadership. And I'm excited today. You're becoming a regular, sir. I think you will be the most the the most present scholar ever on the Phronesis podcast. I have Jonathan Reams, and he practices the cultivation of leadership through awareness-based practices in consulting, coaching, and action research on leadership development program design and delivery. He has an associate professor position at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, serves as editor-in-chief of Integral Review, and is a co-founder of the Center for Transformative Leadership and of the European Center for Leadership Practice. Jonathan, sir, how are you? Today, we discuss your chapter in this edited volume. Yeah, so I've been having so much fun being co-host here and getting to <laughs> engage the the authors who I kind of invited into this, and now it's my turn to tell my story. So I, I'm really looking forward to that. And And I was thinking, you know, you often ask people, what else do we need to fill in about the bio? And I think, you know, that bio is getting old and I need to update it. And it's true that I, I use this term awareness-based processes, but I think I need to find a better formulation now 
there's certainly something about awareness, but now it's pointing more towards kind of metacognition and and skill development in micro learning and, and there's something going on but to find a nice simple synthesis it's not there yet so uh how about just uh awesome awesome man wouldn't that be kind of cool <laughs> no god no it brings me back my kids went to this private junior high school and they had their friends over and my nickname was dr awesome <laughs> now okay there's a story there tell it real quickly and then we'll jump in okay so they had a retreat <laughs> and a sleepover kind of thing and i was out with some of these guys who were like 15 or something and we were out on some back roads and i let them drive my car and we were driving up this mountain road to a ski hill so we're way up in the mountains gravel road big cliffs and they're taking turns driving. And this, I'm sitting in the back seat. And this one guy, you know, I say to him, hey, you might want to slow down. You know, this is slippery around these corners, you know, and there's, you know, 100 foot cliff there. And he didn't really slow down. And at some point, the car spun and did a couple of 360s and stopped facing backwards next to the cliff. <laughs> and so I said, turn the car off pull the handbrake, hand me the keys, everybody get out of the car. And well, the first thing I said to him was, good job, because he didn't take us over the cliff. <laughs> and then I just calmly, you know, calmly said, get out, let's everybody get out of the car and take a walk for a moment. And they came back and I think they were like, wow, he didn't freak out on us. And that was awesome. Remind me not to have my children hang out with yours. <laughs> 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 oh that's so awesome that's funny that's dr awesome maybe that's what we'll call the episode dr awesome <laughs> well so your chapter your chapter in this edited volume i'm excited to kind of dive into that a little bit and and listeners will really have a nice as i understand it this is a little more applied correct yes and it's called leadership laboratory or some leadership development laboratory. The, the context is, is this: that here in Trondheim, the uh, municipality was going through a big restructuring, and they had people who had like forty or fifty direct reports, and they realized they needed another layer in there. So they did some restructuring and created eight hundred new positions, and then they needed to train these people. And what they wanted was a kind of accelerator program for some core people who would both support the design and delivery of the program for the larger group. And somehow I got connected with the person responsible for this, and he thought, oh, this sounds awesome, mm. and gave us carte blanche. You know, we had a budget ceiling limit, but we had 16 people, and he says, you can do whatever you want. So I thought, wow, cool. So we had this group of people for eight, nine months. I think we had 10 or 11 days with them. And we basically said, what are all the coolest things we could imagine doing and how would we put them together? And that's what I mean by applied. I mean, you're so much of your life, I, I know you're doing both, but a lot of your life is engaging in conversations like this, editing papers. It's really focused in on that academic side of the house. And now it's very much, hey, 
let's put some of this stuff into practice. What are the coolest things we know about? And so I'm excited to hear what you learned, what you observed, and hear about this kind of laboratory. So the first thing was really designing, thinking, okay, out of all the things that we have, what do we choose? How do we sequence them? How do we deploy them? One of the first things I did was I wanted to use Lectica's developmental assessments and skill theory and all these kind of things. But I didn't want to make it an imposition in a way. So what I did was I interviewed everybody prior to the program. Okay. And this was to get to know them a bit, set some expectations, do some orientation, but also to give them a a case, a dilemma, and invite them to reflect on it. And so I would interview and record that for about an hour, transcribe it, and then we use that to develop a report giving us a lot of information on how they're thinking, what their skills were in different areas, like how they thought about collaborating, what scope of context they thought about, how do they coordinate perspectives, what kind of process around decisions do they have. So we got data on all these kind of things. But then we let that sit in the background a bit. And to start, I took, I think on another episode, we talked with Chuck Paulus and John McGuire. We took their developmental action logic cards On the first day of the program, we gave people these cards and said, look, pick a card or two that represents you five years ago. Pick a card or two that represents you now and pick one that where you'd like to be in five years and then have a discussion on what is this journey like for you and what's helping you on the way. And just to give them this sense of leader development as a journey and that they could recognize change over time and see where they aspired to. Well, Jonathan, you've said a few things just even in this first few moments of the podcast that really intrigue me. So you used a word that I absolutely love. It's design. There's intentionality. There's a lot of forethought. There's a lot of care that's going into what this learning experience will be like. So you you had me at design. And then the fact that you really spent some time with these these 16 participants and really got to know them, learned about them, built a relationship, I just think, I mean, obviously you can't do that every time, but I think it's a really interesting way to even enter the space because you've developed this relationship with folks ahead of the formal learning experience. And then what a wonderful way to invite people into beginning to think about themselves, beginning to think about their quote-unquote journeys, the activity that you mentioned developed by Chuck and John. I mean, that's just, it's its so, I like, th- I like it. I mean, it sounds very, very thoughtful and intentional. Good. It was, it was, lots of thought went into it. When When you get the chance to play, you want to do it well. The next thing we did that day was set them up to take a 360. Okay. So one of the things we realized was important was for them to get feedback on how their leadership is experienced by others in their environment. Sure. They need second-person perspectives. You know, they may have their own ideas of how they are or where they want to be, but they need a reality check. Hmm. We did all the kind of logistics and orientation and then set them up, and then they had six weeks or so to get people to evaluate them and do their own. 
how do you think about 360s, Jonathan? What What's your perspective on on that conversation? I have not had an episode dedicated to the topic. How do you experience that as a tool? For me, it's been really helpful. And I've used it in the leadership course I do at the university for 15 years now. I use the Leadership Circle 360. Okay. Um, primarily because it integrates Bob Keegan's work. It has that developmental kind of component, and it really shows the dynamic relationships between limiting beliefs and assumptions and competencies. Okay. The other thing I think about that 360s are useful for is that self-assessment is notoriously poor. Now, for some people, it's better than others. Some people are more self-aware. But for anybody, there can always be blind spots. And those are such rich opportunities for learning and development. So to be able to kind of map those out with some real data, and it's not that the limits of these, they are second person impressions. Yes. How do people interpret your behavior in their context? So it's not an absolute measure of stuff. But it is giving a clear indication of how you are seen in your context. That gives people feedback that is relevant, useful, and the debriefing process. So the second gathering, we had three days, and we would do that. They would get their feedback. We would debrief them. And then we would do immunity to change with them. Okay. Because this would give us clues and give them clues about limiting beliefs and assumptions, the immunity to change would take that further and really help make that richer, more robust of an understanding. Well, and for listeners, the immunity to change activity, uh, you can look up the book Immunity to Change by Robert Keegan, Lisa Leahy. We'll put that link in the show notes. And there's actually a training that the organization Minds at Work, will you can t- participate in. And Jonathan, I know you've also done a review of that book, and we can put that in the show notes as well so that people can access that. But there's just a really wonderful opportunity. This is probably, for listeners, the Immunity to Change activity. I'll never forget, this might be 2006. I'm at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard in this program put on by Ron Heifetz called The Art and Practice of Leadership Development. And in the middle of this program, Robert Keegan comes walking in and takes us through the immunity to change exercise. And I'll never forget, Jonathan, I was at a really, I was on the precipice of something and I couldn't name it. And I, in some ways, wasn't in a great space. And this hit me at the perfect time. But he took us through the process and I have this map and I called him over and I said, is this what it's supposed to look like? And he looked at me and said, Yes. And I just got tears in my eyes. I mean, there was just, I could finally observe and look at kind of the system at play. And wow. I mean, it was, I took that piece of paper, I brought it to my wife, I showed it to her. She was like, yeah, yes. And it was one of those moments, Jonathan, that again, just one of the most powerful learning exercises that I not only deliver, but also have participated in. So I love that you're including that work, the immunity to change exercise. Well, and I think you you give a good illustration of the impact we saw it had on people in the program. Really? And, and I use this in my university leadership course. I, I've got an article where we used it in a corporate program for about 400 leaders. 
so I've got some report on that, and I can give you the link to that. So you're using immunity to change. You're using the the leadership circle. I'm not familiar with that 360. I look forward to investigating that. But then that leads nicely into into immunity to change yeah. exercise. Well, and I think what you described is is what people experience. They they have a phenomenological felt sense of something that's holding them back or something that's not right. Mm. But they can't name it or talk about it. They are subject to it. Yes. And this process helps map that out in ways that kind of gets around internalized defense mechanisms Yep, and gives names to things. And so people in the program found this so helpful. And then we did a couple of coaching sessions individually for them based on this. So that was the first kind of phase of the program. We helped them, and what we called it is we helped them clean up. Wow. Find out what is the impact you're having as a leader that you would not like to, you know, you're not happy with. And what's going on in you that's generating that and and what is that based on and and how do you kind of reveal that and clean it up a little bit so that now you're in a position to look ahead and say okay now that i'm not held back by this how mm. can i go forward how can i grow up after i've cleaned up wow well and and jonathan i i was i was saying to you before we started recording I was in a day-long session yesterday that I was leading in my community for an organization. My guest, Doug Lindsay, on the podcast had had shared a quote by Bob Hogan from, you know, Hogan Assessments, you know, who you are is how you lead. And I mean, I just love your visual of kind of cleaning up because when you ask participants, well, what does that quote mean? You know, people come back with things like authenticity or values, or they talk about personality. And I said, yes, all of that, <laughs> right? So if others are in your care, are you doing that work to ensure that you are the best version of you, the best possible self? And again, we're never going to be perfect. All of us have drawbacks and, and limitations, and we have strengths and we have challenges. And I mean, but if others are in our care, I think we have a duty to, as you said, clean up and and systematize yeah. that learning and systematize that process to take part in this these very very challenging roles, right? Yeah. Well, and it's the, that phrase that leaders create the weather. Mm. Oh and wow! It's, it's often leaders' unconscious shadows that are the most active weather creation patterns. Say more. Where, where did you get that? No, it's just I've heard it around. It, it's, <laughs> but it's leaders create the weather is, you know, the metaphor for the culture, for the holding environment, for the yeah. space that is there that everybody's reacting to and, and finding themselves in. And it's often the unconscious projections of one's own needs or beliefs onto others. So another of the tools and models we use is the Arbinger Institute's work. Okay. Leadership and self-deception, the anatomy of peace, the outward mindset. And they have a very simple but profound way of getting at that. Jonathan, there is a CEO in my community who his favorite book is Leadership and Self-Deception. I've never read it, though, and I know nothing about the Arbinger Institute. So you're sharing a number of resources today. 
I'm not familiar with, I'm curious about now that you've mentioned them because they're kind of pinging in a few different corners here. But would mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about the Arbinger Institute? My understanding is there's a Mormon philosopher named Terry Warner. Okay. Who spent a lot of time trying to understand core kind of philosophical issues in human challenges and came to a kind of Martin Buber-like notion that there's a fundamental difference between treating others as people and treating others as objects. Okay. Now, what triggers that? Because when we treat others as people, when we see them as whole people, if we see a need, we feel called to help and and we act on that and then all is well. But sometimes we will see a person and we will feel called to do something, but we won't. Hmm. And in that moment, we need to have a good reason why we didn't. Mm. We need to make ourselves okay. And then what happens is we naturally justify our lack of action by cutting away the wholeness of the other and making them a little more two-dimensional. We foreground some things that give us good reason not to, and we put in the background other aspects of the person. And and that leads to all sorts of consequences. So what they talk about, though, why the first book was leadership and self-deception, is that once that has happened, it gets so deep into the lenses and filters through which we view others that we don't notice it. Wow. So we're not aware that we're deceiving ourselves. I, I think that happened to me in the last couple of weeks. It happens to us all the time, Scott. Yeah. It's part of the, and it's a fundamental part of the human condition. Wow. But becoming aware of it and understanding what ways there are, what are typical signs of it. So the leadership and self-deception book talks about being in the box or out of the box. And they even talk about different kinds of boxes. So what are some typical patterns of thinking and, and acting that you can notice that are probably signs that your actions are driven more by a need to justify yourself mm. rather than the other's actual situation. You've listened to that episode with Dr. Akram Boutros from Metro Health. I'm sure yes. you have, where yes. you know it was talks about love, and and that's yes. one of his favorite books. I mean, it's just it's one of my favorites too. So I use it in all the classes that I teach. So we introduce those concepts to them as a simple distinction. They found that very useful because it's simple. It was easy to anchor on. There's some great simple resources and simple tools that you can use. So very briefly, this notion of a collusion map, okay. or as my friend calls it, unintended collaboration. <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard of a collusion map. Well, so, so <laughs> it's very simple thing. You know, yeah. there's four little four quadrants. You ask people... So think of an other that you have a conflict with. Okay. Okay. What do they do? So you write down what they do, whether it's an individual or a group. What are the behaviors? It's another department or another person, uh, you know, and they do certain behaviors. Mm. Then you write, okay, what do we see or what do I see? And it's 
basically what labels do you give what judgments do you make when they're doing that what names do you call them mm. they're stupid they're lazy they're ignorant they, you know whatever it is depending upon what they're doing the third one is okay so if that's what you see what do you do well we do this we do that we take this action we you know we protect ourselves okay that's great then you do the perspective taking move and say well now, if you're doing those things, what do you think they see? Mm. And then you start to see, okay, now, if they see those, that characteristics of your behavior, do you see a link between that and what they're doing? Oh, wow. And once you show people this, and I've never had it fail to work, once people see that, they go, wow. They go, oh. And then you say, now, how can you intervene? Now that you're aware of this system of unintended collapse, you know, everybody's making things worse because you think you're following a good logic because they're like this, we're doing that. Once you break that cycle, you create opportunities for other options and you start seeing the person more holistically. So it sounds, Jonathan, like in, in a lot of your work, and, and we haven't gotten to other aspects of it yet, but you are really working to situate people in themselves. <laughs> yeah. Really, really do that work to help people look at themselves, look at their behavior, better understand. And that's a starting place. And that, that's the starting place. So this is cleaning up. Now, if I come back to the interviews I did at the beginning, all the data we got from this, from the electrical assessment, I know you had a conversation with Theo Dawson, and it's basically, I've learned more from her about this than anybody. What we did next was we had a summer break, and we came back, and we had kind of one day a month workshops, and we gave them criteria to bring a, a challenge or case from their own workplace. And we had criteria because we said, look, there should be either be some conflict involved or messy complexity or... You know, we gave them four or five things that it should meet at least two of these criteria. It should be challenging and difficult in some way. Nice. Okay, so they would bring that. And then what we would do is we would give them a small portion of feedback that says, based on the way you talked about this case where I interviewed you back then, you're likely thinking about communication or collaboration or conflict in these ways. And here is a slightly more mature, complex way of thinking about it. And look look at what the difference between these is and what would you do differently and how would you apply that difference to your case? We put them in groups that were based on them having similar kind of uh, levels of thinking in that sense. And they they loved that. They said, how did you know how to put us together? Well, we had our magic <laughs> you know, formulas. But, but they said, we can finish each other's sentences. We recognize how much we think in similar ways, similar patterns, because the underlying structure of their thinking was very similar. Wow. So they worked in small trios, shared their cases, looked at the feedback, used that to kind of think of what would I do differently. Then we sent them out and said, now you go practice that. Come back a month later, then reflect. Okay, what happened? You did this, you applied it. What did you learn doing it differently? 
Okay, now here's, you've either got a new case or the same case. Here is another piece of feedback on a little different skill area. Hmm. How can you apply the developmental growth edge difference here? And we did this four times with them. And they got so addicted to this. So here in Norway, lunch is 1130. It's early. Yeah. And they're very good at going for lunch. <laughs> but this this on time, right? Yeah. But this one day, it was the third month we were doing this. And we were taking a long time doing the reflections from what they'd been doing in between. And it was about 10 minutes to lunchtime. And I thought, well, I'm going to give them their new worksheets with new feedback and just let them look over it quick before lunch so they can sit with it. I, I couldn't get them out of the room for half an hour. <laughs> they were so intent on looking. And, and this showed me this kind of Theo talks about the dopamine opioid cycle and this natural yes. learning. And there was it, there was such clear evidence to me that they were so motivated and getting so much out of it that they weren't going to go to lunch. No, I'm going to get into this now. That is just, okay. I, as you're speaking, I'm just thinking of all of these different instructional strategies that you're building into this experience, whether it's creating a little bit of a practice field in between, whether it's these personalized case studies that obviously they're very interested in and engaged with, whether it's some of the feedback from these assessments sprinkled in throughout, whether it's the 360, some of the classroom lecturette that I'm sure is happening so that they understand some of these concepts from the Arbinger Institute, some of the group work that's occurring. I mean, you're creating the personalized interviews at the very, very beginning. You're creating a very rich experience for these participants. I mean, I want to I want to be in this. How do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was, you know, and I can put a link to, we had a journalist come in on the last day. We did two days at the end to kind of integrate and summarize. And just before that, we had a visitor observing what we were doing. And so I said, well, everybody just introduce yourself to this person. Just say who you are and what you do for the municipality. Well, to a person, they all started talking about what they were learning and how it was affecting them and how much they were using it. And I thought, wow, we got to capture this. So the journalist actually got a photographer to come in with a good camera. And so we were able to capture a bunch of little interview clips from people talking about what they did now that they didn't do before. Yeah. I can put a link into that where it's a nice little article and it talks about the 360 and so on. We also had two colleagues of mine from the university then did a focus group with this, I think about four or five months later. Mm. And a lot of what they said was, first of all, the 360 made such an impact for them because they were in a feedback poor environment. Wow. Um, Scandinavian culture is very egalitarian. Uh, very conflict averse. People aren't good at having difficult conversations and giving. So they, there wasn't much of a normative culture for doing that in a good way. And they said they were starved for understanding how were they doing. And wow. that feedback was so impactful for them just to get a sense of how other people experience them. 
And then the things about the practice and, and the simple concepts that they could repeat and try out over time, applied to their own things. All of this gave them this feeling that, yeah, they had done something now that they couldn't do before. Well, Jonathan, I'm I'm working on this paper with Dave Rush, and I've I've mentioned it in a few different episodes. And something we're really interested in is how do you create a learning environment that promotes development, that that helps people build their uh, awareness and mental complexity. We can call it stages. Obviously, you're not going to move that needle drastically in a in a 11 month program or something of that nature. But can you get people on the path? Do you start building some habits of mind? And we write about things like the holding environment, and we write about things like challenge and support. I mean, you're challenging these individuals to think differently about themselves, but you're also supporting them in that work and creating that holding environment. You're creating an environment where they're practicing active listening with others and really, truly being with them and listening to them. I mean, it's just, I mean, I could go down the list, but what's so fun about this conversation is you're talking about something you've created that has so many of the elements that we're thinking about built into the design of the experience, not necessarily the content, but the design of the experience, right? Yeah, I think so. And and that was the, the intentionality of design and having time to really think through and adapt a little as we went along, as we saw what was going on. That was helpful, too. I wanted to say a little bit about this notion of development, okay, the dirty word stages, so to speak, because yeah. I think it's true what you say. We're not going to, you know, measure development over this short of time. But many of those models are are big, broad brush strokes. They're very coarse distinctions in a mm. sense. What we find more useful is working with the notion of skill development. But but so that notion of, okay, so what are those things? There's also this thing of cleaning up because oftentimes I think people's development or maturity is inhibited by their shadows, mm. that they're weighed down by their own baggage. And so there's some natural development that can happen by just taking the lid off or, you know, getting lightening the load of baggage people are carrying. I think that's an easy win in a sense. The more complex wins of taking micro skills and building more complex neural networks of abilities to think more maturely and complexly in precise ways, in precise areas. If you do enough of that over time, you build up a more robust set of capabilities overall. And as you say, you start get the wheel turning, you get the momentum going so that people are likely to continue to reflect and learn and think differently and look for ways to grow. Real quick, and I know that this isn't a real quick question. (laughs) Yeah, that's the, as soon as you you said that, oh yeah, right. (laughs) What did you learn? I have a project coming up for a couple of years in another setting where we're going to get a chance to apply more of this kind of open thing, maybe not as much intensive research because there's going to be 80 people uh, in an invention group, in a control group, 
and then we'll do the control group after we do the first iteration, we will have the opportunity to take what we've learned from here. So what have I learned is that what is the most important thing to stimulate this? What's, you know, the if I have to only do X number of things because I can't do all of those things. And in this context, we won't be able to do all of those things because there's not enough budget for 80 people to do all that. So how do we create impact with less resources? Mm. And for that, I think it is around helping people learn how to learn. Mm. So this V-Col that Theo talked about, this virtuous cycle of learning, this natural learning cycle, and how do you create the kind of motivational hooks? How do you make it salient, relevant, engaging, so that you get the dopamine active, so that people are alert? And so we're looking at what are the key things that will engender that, what once we have that going how do we give them just enough tools and support to start practicing yes and then we're going to aim to you know how do you practice on yourself how do you practice with your team and how do you practice in relation to organizational level issues so you're not getting in a room and talking about you know the seven attributes of effective leaders <laughs> no no <laughs> When you don't I, have when a lecture I, on situational leadership for this for this uh, learning well, experience. I can make one up, <laughs> but what what I find is at least over time. Now, having been in this field, you know, I did my PhD uh, Gonzaga twenty years ago. Now I finished yeah. it, and then, you know, the time I was doing my master's and PhD there, and the time since, you know, you get exposed to your ignorance. Mm. you start to see how much more out there there is. But you see certain themes and things come around. And then eventually I noticed that, okay, all of these things are simply constructs. People have constructed meaning around this or that. So we got exposed to Heifetz's adaptive leadership. Well, it's clearly a very rich, robust conception. Mm. But if you just encounter the word and a few little intellectual abstractions about it, you will not be able to go out and do much about it. No. And I think I'm more interested now in trying to kind of take the noise of intellectual abstractions away from people's attention. Okay. Because we're distracted enough. And allow them to focus in on, well, what's going on for you now? How are so we had a client, a pharmaceutical company in Copenhagen recently, and they talked about the buzzword box. They had been told to be agile, and here's three archetypes of agile leaders. And now we we did the leadership circle with him. You got to be creative and not reactive and more jargon. And now we're gonna roll out servant leadership. And what's that about? And so we spent two hours just, well, look, what have you been doing? Oh, well, that's a little bit like that. And just help them show these abstract things. No, they're just descriptions of things that they're doing or maybe not doing as much. So helping people filter out the intellectually abstract noise and anchoring it in their experience more, I think that's more useful for people to actually learn and develop. 
Well, uh, listeners, when you when you purchase maturing leadership, uh, this is this is Jonathan's chapter in that book. So there's just a really uh, there's just a lot of I think wisdom, exploration, curiosity, design baked into this whole conversation that we just had. I love that you are experimenting, that you're trying a different approach to some of this work, the whole notion of cleaning up. I absolutely love it. And, you know, as we wind down today, what's something that's caught your eye? What's something that's caught your attention recently? I think the most exciting thing I read lately was Dan Coyle's The Talent Code. Okay. It It is such a clear illustration of this virtuous cycle of learning model. It's, you know, about the deep learning or deep practice, he calls it. And it's about neuroscience of learning and what are the kind of motivational triggers? What is deep practice about? How do you coach and support it? It was super informative with great illustrations and examples. Okay. That was the most important and interesting and engaging thing that I read lately. Okay. I would say in terms of streaming, I was streaming different conversations with interesting people, streaming your podcast. I'm not quite caught up. So every time I'm in the gym, I'm listening to one or two more. (laughs) Well, you're the only person I know who started at one and just just kind of got on the journey. So <laughs> I'm like that. I'm I'm very like stick to it, persevere. Oh, but I what I it. would say about that is compared to cherry picking, it was the ones I had no clue who they were that I found often the most interesting. Mm. Just some fun conversations, some fun, interesting, engaging conversations. I've just loved this project. And it's, of course, it's led me to people like you and your work. And so, Jonathan, thank you so much for your work. This was an anomaly, right? Being on the interviewee end. And now I'll switch over to the interviewer. (laughs) Okay, be well. So, Jonathan, this is our last reflection in this series. I'm sure we we will reflect again together at some point. But for this series, this is our last reflection. And we're kind of ending where we began. I'm asking you to do this odd thing where you're going to reflect on your own podcast episode. But I do want to say this before we get to you. This, in some ways, was one of my favorite episodes because I got to learn about you and I learned about how you approach this work. When you are working with a group of people, some of the tools you utilize, you value, how you're thinking about this activity of how do we better prepare people to serve in these really complex roles. So I just wanted to say that. I mean, I just really appreciated the opportunity to to learn in that way from you. Thanks, Scott. I, I thought you were going to say something about uh, the Dr. Awesome story, you know, about how crazy I was letting these teenagers drive on gravel mountain roads and almost take us over a cliff. <laughs> I still will not let my children in a car with you. You aren't going to babysit my kids. <laughs> so as you listen back to this, yeah. what stood out for you? It, it is it really interesting in, in this sense to try and take a perspective on your own articulation of your experience. So I have a few things that I that I noted. So that leadership development is a journey, that it's ongoing. The notion of robust design 
And this came up in other episodes. We talked about the generating transformative change from Pacific Integral using multiple frameworks and resources and building them in a sequence. So for me, you know, what stands out is this sequence of it's important to do some cleaning up before we try and do some growing up. Yes. And how helpful it was to have access to this underlying structure in terms of pairing people up in working groups and so on. That, And this came up in other conversations we've had too, how the structure of people's thinking informs the content of it and that blending those can be so powerful. The notion that leaders create the weather. Yes. So there's something about, and you've mentioned this before, for me, it, it came from Parker Palmer that we teach who we are. And we lead who we are. And so we create the weather. We create the culture and the holding environment of the organization and project our shadows out. So self-awareness and cleaning those up becomes so critically important. And that part of this is, you'd mentioned leadership and self-deception, the work of the Arbinger Institute as part of being clean and how profound and razor sharp that type of being clean can actually be. And then finally, the focus on immediate experience and making sense and distinctions to filter out intellectual abstractions so that people can be really present to what's going on in the moment and not just trying to theorize or kind of get lost in the intellectualization of it. Yeah. Which, and again, as we've discussed in other reflections, is an art form in and of itself. How do we clearly and succinctly communicate some of these concepts while honoring their complexity, but also helping uh, helping people understand in a relatively quick period of time what we're trying to accomplish? Yeah, and I, I just want to say a couple things in closing. One is that there were three other chapters that we didn't manage to arraign podcast interviews with for various reasons. And so there's more in the book than what we've been able to cover. It's also clear to me that these interviews went far beyond the chapters and didn't cover the chapters in a way either. So they're really a nice combination. And finally, I just want to express my appreciation, Scott, for the invitation, for the mentoring on the journey, for learning kind of how to be in this mode of interviewer. Very appreciative, Scott. Well, the feeling is mutual, Jonathan. I, I was so excited to meet you for the first time in ILA, at ILA back in November. And I'm so excited for the future and the conversations and the projects and the work to come because I have learned so much from you and I just can't thank you enough. Uh, we may have a project down the road with Dave Rush. Who knows? We'll see. Who knows? If we do, it's going to be incredible. And I just love learning with you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn. So let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro.
You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.